Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Each year, the Kirkwood Public Library selects one book for the entire community to read and then discuss. It's called the One Book, One Kirkwood Program. This year's selection is No One is Coming to Save Us, and the author is Stephanie Powell Watts. It's a novel that won the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work. It's about an extended African-American family and its different vision of the American dream. Watts will be at a book event tomorrow evening at 7 at Nifer Middle School in Kirkwood. In advance of her appearance, she spoke with producer Alex Hoyer. For more, here's Alex. Stephanie, thank you for being with us on St. Louis on the Air. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To get started, can you describe the community where this novel takes place? It's a rural community in North Carolina. It's, um, if you know the Asheville area of North Carolina, that's usually the city that people know. These are the small towns, the, the very small towns that surround the Asheville area. They used to be furniture meccas, and there is some furniture still, um, still produced there, but much less than there, than there used to be. Mostly now, they're, um, they're towns looking for industry. They're beautiful. They're picturesque. Um, but there's a there's a lot of suffering in these in these small towns. And the plight of manufacturing of the furniture industry plays a big role in your book, does it not? Yes, it does. It does. I wanted to talk about um, a place that is both post segregation, but that's also southern, but it's also post industrial, because I think a lot of times that 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 idea. Gets is missing from the conversation, um, particularly about African Americans, and we think about Rust Belt and and white workers um, a great deal. But but the African Americans who are suffering in the same kinds of ways, I think that story is sometimes uh, hidden a little bit. And I must admit that I've never read a book quite like yours in that it focused on African Americans who uh, lived in. A poorer area, and and so I'm curious how this story came to you. I I wanted to write a story about some of the places and the people that I knew, and I've uh, I started the story in a very different way and with a very different kind of narrative. But I but I always knew that I wanted to focus on the people that I grew up with and that I felt like in in some ways are have been voiceless in American literature. And um, so I'm part of a generation that's post-civil rights. So there's not the kinds, the same kinds of uh, Jim Crow prohibitions in people who are my age, but, um, but there's still those ghosts and still that lingering presence of that, of that terrible past still there. And so I wanted to write a story in that, in that past and with, contemporary characters. And I certainly think that's reflected in in the book with some of your main characters, particularly between Ava and uh, her mother, Sylvia. Can you talk about who those characters are? Yes. So Sylvia is about 70 years old. Uh, she's an African-American woman who has lived in the South and actually in these small, a couple of these small towns, adjoining small towns, for most of her life. And she has seen a great deal of, of change, at least uh, a great deal of superficial change in those towns that she lives in. And she's also seen change of her own fortune. She grew up in a place where she didn't have running water. And so for her to have her own home and to have a home that she thinks of as beautiful and to have moved up so significantly in the world, she sees as a great triumph. 
but of course her children as uh, you know our children sometimes don't um understand where we come from and don't understand what the kinds of sacrifices and the kind of great triumphs that we have and her daughter is no exception and so Ava sees the kind of life that they have as just their ordinary lives and even their ordinary kind of poor lives and so Ava Sylvia wants to communicate to her um, this is really good. This is this is great progress, but she also doesn't want to burden her with that idea, you know, that you're always thinking about overcoming, always thinking about uplift. So she's in a kind of conundrum with trying to, to figure out um, what tack to take with her own daughter. And her daughter is focused on other kinds of things. She certainly sees that the that the road to racial equality is they haven't gotten there yet, and she gets that, but she also has other kinds of issues with her own body and with fertility and those kinds of things that are um, that are keeping her kind of stuck in place. And what about the men in both of these women's lives? Oh, they're, they are so difficult. <laughs> these, both of these men <laughs> have some real issues, and... You know, uh, partly because, I mean, you know, it's partly because of their character. You know, some people call it character logic. They're, because of their character logic, they cannot be faithful. They can't, you know, just do what they, they're supposed to do in the kind of family dynamic. But also because of what the, the world has offered them, they feel, they both have this kind of imperative to, do things that are transgressive in the family and they know it's going to hurt them and they know it's not going to be good but in in the many cases they do they do it anyway so um but i i i really felt the need to write characters that i that i thought that i wanted to love even if i didn't like them all the time you know i wanted to feel like these are people who are flawed and who have a lot of problems all of them actually but especially the men, there's certain things that you're that you really can't abide if you're, you know, if you're a, a spouse or a partner to one of these men. But but I wanted you to be able to to feel where they're coming from and to not hate them for it. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I must admit that I did not like them, uh, but I wanted to like them. I wanted <laughs> yeah. to root for them. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> J.J.? Um, J.J. was, uh, he was very young when he first was in the town, and he was a friend of the family, and he had, he had fallen in love, as, off, as often happens, with, with, uh, with Ava, who was, was kind to him at a time when he really needed it. And so um, he comes back to the town. He feels like this is his only place that he can call home. It's his really is um, his only home that he has left. And so he tries to build one. He tries to come back to town and build one. In fact, Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't want to give away how the, how the story goes, but as you mentioned, he, he wants to get Ava back and, uh, and he builds this house that's elevated on, on some raised land that is on a road that overlooks the town where uh, people would live if they have a lot of money. That's right. And uh, J.J. has clearly made it to some extent. He he has money, but yet J.J., as is the case with so many of the other characters, are not satisfied 
where they are in life. And and that seemed to be one of the themes throughout the book is that um, no one really seems satisfied in where they are in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm yeah. curious about the circumstances that led to that. Certainly the effects of uh, the lingering effects of segregation are a part of that. Poverty is also a part of that. Can you talk a little bit about the different layers that go into affecting your characters? Yes, I mean, I I think that um, that being satisfied is um, an important part of being a being a whole person and having some level of happiness. And I think that. Most of the characters, or at least I hope that most of the characters, have some of that. They've figured out a way, even with their own difficult personalities and their and their own circumstances and also the circumstances of, of the world, that they've figured out some ways to carve out a little piece of that. You know, not always, but um, but sometimes. And that and that's a lot. That's a lot for anybody. But there are some there are some kind of holes that can't be filled, that that do seem to be a bottomless. And some of those have to do with family. And certainly for JJ, it has to do with family. And he's looking for some kind of connection that isn't just about money or that isn't just about where he happens to land, but some kind of foundation, some root system that he can go return to. And the, the money allows him, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's not rich. He's uh, he um, has figured out a way to make some money, but he's not. You know, he's not a multimillionaire or anything. But he's but he does have something, and he thinks if uh, if he can have that as a stake in the world, then he can have the other things that will um, that will tie him to a place, tie him to a community, and ultimately to a family. And I think that that's part of what we're we're all searching for there's a kind of disquiet in in many of us that as soon as you get the thing you think that you that you needed then you realize that some of it is is that it's incomplete and you know i'm i'm often um i don't know if you ever watch award shows or uh, especially the tony awards they seem to be really really big about this mm-hmm. but the, um, you know, the people will get up on the dais or whatever, and they'll say, you know, I wish my grandmother could have seen this, or this is for my father, who is, you know, and even in that moment of, of great triumph, there's this missing piece that is, that, and, and, that's, and in that case, it's usually about loss and about the death of someone, but, but, but in other cases, there's something that doesn't quite put the puzzle together. And I think that's just part of the human condition. If we're well-balanced, then we can continue with, uh, with not being quite complete. You know, we can still be ambulatory and make it in the world. But, um, but sometimes, even then, we have to just we break down a little bit. And we, we have to stop and say, okay, I don't have this. But that doesn't mean that everything else is nullified. Mm-hmm. Several of the comments on the book jacket mentioned that this book uses The Great Gatsby uh, as as mm-hmm. a starting point. And uh, I think you could recognize that uh, if you think of J.J. as as Gatsby um, in, in terms of the house that, that he has, the, the relative wealth that 
J.J. has. And you had also previously mentioned that American literature has not really taken the kind of story that, that you've done. Black people are not well represented as a whole in American literature. Can you explain how you took that thread of The Great Gatsby and, and wove it into your novel? Uh, yes. I, when I first started this novel, it was um, it was a very different looking novel. It was everybody was much younger and it was set at the time of a tragedy in the family. And so uh, that that novel just didn't seem to work for me. I worked I worked on it a couple of years and tried to figure it out. But I felt like that this was a was a novel about a kind of return. And when I started thinking about that, I started thinking about Gatsby. And the um, this this novel, I mean, I've, I've um, it's it's been called a reboot and that kind of thing or a retelling. And it very much is not. It's uh, it is only. I'm hoping that it's in some ways in conversation with Gatsby, the idea of what is your American dream? How do you find it? Can you look to it in this nostalgic place, which is what um, which is what both my character, Jay, and what Gatsby tried to do, tried to say, I'm going to go to the past. I can't, I can't move forward until I go to the past and try to recreate whatever kind of life that I thought I needed from there. And the and I think one of the one of the issues one of the most American things um, in the book is that we don't we as Americans do not live in the past we are we are we at least say that it doesn't matter the past doesn't matter that it's about moving forward that it doesn't matter you know who you are or uh, who your parents were or what you did or or what affects you know what affected you then. We are your future-looking people. I mean, to our to our great credit, but also um, to our detriment, a lot of times we say that. And so, um, so the characters, both Jay and Gatsby, trying to go back to the past and saying, "Now let's do, let's just start again, reset, and let's start again." And how um, how ultimately foolish that is, and how um, and how you cannot recreate the, those moments even when you try your best to even when you have the best intentions because mm-hmm. they're the people that you left there are simply not the same and so um so in that way it was i wanted it to be in a in conversation what is what is that american dream and how do you find it and but i also wanted my my people um my characters to not be rooted in a past, but to always have it in their heads, you know, and I think that especially people of color, um, uh, I think that that's, that's part of, and people from minority and other groups always have this in their heads. What I'm doing is not just for me. It's for, uh, it's for a whole group of people. I have to keep in mind that this is the way this place was and therefore remnants of that still exist. I mean, so it's always this kind of regurgitating of the past, trying to push into into another kind of life. Uh, and so my characters are, I, I'm hoping that they are, they are forward-looking, but they're, they are always, they always know where they came from. I think that's, that's really good. And there's a passage of the book that I think exemplifies what you're getting at. And you had earlier mentioned uh, this idea of superficial change, superficial progress. Uh, there's a there's a passage on page 
158 that I'd like you to read if you could. And uh, before you do, uh, tell us what Simi's is, because that context is needed uh, to understand this. Okay. Uh, Simi's is a restaurant in the town, and it's like many restaurants um, that still exist in uh, a lot of small southern cities and towns. It uh, at one point did not allow um, African Americans or any people of color to eat in the dining room, and there in some places there were drive-through windows, but there were walk-up windows at the time. There were walk-up windows in the back of the restaurants, or there were certain days that people of color could go to the restaurants if they if they chose to. And so this restaurant is um, still there and still operating, and it's a place that um, African Americans in the town have very different kind of views about. All right. So this is a passage on page 158 of uh, the novel No One is Coming to Save Us. Ava had been to Simi's, not often, maybe as much as once a month with some of her coworkers, but she always felt guilty about eating there. All the stories the older people told couldn't be erased with a fancy new sign or repaved parking lot. Ava knew that none of the stories involved her directly, and the restaurant could never be for her what it had been for her mother and what it might be for her baby. Her father had gone inside with a couple of his friends right after the place integrated. The young men had sat at a table, ordered coffee from a waitress who had not and did not say a word to them. Once they got the coffee, they stirred in sugar and milk, took a couple of sips, and left the restaurant. All they wanted was to go inside, show everybody in the room that they could come in. The men had not wanted it this way. They didn't want to take things, force the hand, pry the fingers open one by one. They wanted to be invited like friends, like men, but no invitation ever came. That's a passage in No One Is Coming to Save Us. The author is Stephanie Powell Watts, and she joins me. Now, Stephanie, this situation is likely a microcosm of what has happened countless times across the United States. Where does the kind of invitation that is at the very end of that passage, where is that kind of invitation still needed? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that, that even in places like um, like restaurants or even in very public places, I don't think that this feeling of, of not being welcome has gone away completely. I mean, I'm sure you've heard or um, read or maybe you've experienced yourself about um, being in in public spaces and uh, having people look at you disparagingly or or assume that you don't belong there or follow you or those kinds of things. And, you know, obviously that, that is a very strong indication that you aren't welcome. And so those, those kind of invitations, I think, have to be extended everywhere. I know a lot of, of people of color who go to, um, um, like, just, just keep with the um, restaurant idea, who go to franchise restaurants because they know what to expect and they know that the people uh, have to treat them in a particular way. And going to a restaurant that might be um, a little bit different or family-owned or somewhere that they don't necessarily know. You don't know how you'll be treated and and how you'll be made to feel. So I mean, I feel like that this is a this is a continual kind of thing that that we have to be uh, aware of. 
It made me think a little bit of uh, something that was in the news just a couple of weeks ago, and and that was uh, the black men who were in Starbucks and and were arrested. and And I don't know if if those two situations seem at all similar to you in terms of uh, in terms of being welcome in a public place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And I was just so um, so moved by the poise of of the men. Um, and how they they didn't lash out. I mean, I think ever-present ever is, um, again, what I was talking about, about being in both places, being in the present and the past at the same time. I mean, you know that regardless of what has happened before, if you behave in, um, in a, a way that might be completely justified with anger or, um, or I, it's seeming like a, that there's a... That, that there's some kind of pointing to your indignities um, that you could be in real trouble, I mean, even in danger. And so, but I, I so admire the poise of those, of those men. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm sure I don't know every nuance of the situation, but it's, it just seems so silly, you know, to, that it would have to go to these kinds of lengths. I mean, I've sat in, um, in places like that and, for a long, long time, you know, and mm-hmm. usually because it's so busy and I'm waiting and I'll just, I'll just sit there until I get ready, you know, to, to, um, but I'm, but I'm five two and, you know, and, um, I'm not, I'm, nobody's afraid of me. So, um, there, so there is that element of it too. We mentioned at the top of this interview that this novel, that your novel is part of the one book, one Kirkwood program. So there are going to be countless uh, Kirkwood residents who are reading your novel. What would you hope to leave them with after they have read it? You know, there there's so many things that you that you wish for when you when you write something. I mean, you hope that people read the story and enjoy it. That they that they find something interesting about it, something compelling. That they um, that they identify in some way with some of the characters, or or see something about themselves that they wish wasn't there about other in other characters, and so I mean that's the that's the kind of first thing you want people to feel. But I, I also want people to feel like that this is both a story about these particular um, African Americans in and this particular time in this particular place, so that if um, if you are not in that time and, and place, and you are not African American, that you don't universalize the whole thing. That you don't feel like, oh, that's me, but that, but that's them. I think there's something really lost when we um, when we insist on everything being universal. There's some experiences that I will never have. I'm I'm not an immigrant, for example, but I can appreciate some of some of the feelings and some of that um, emotional weight. Of being of being an, an immigrant and feeling and feeling othered in um, in in that way, um, and so I so I do want that, but I also want people to feel like this is a family that um, like like any other family, maybe even in some ways like like my family, um, and so I want people to feel feel that too. So you know, Fitzgerald always talks about holding two uh, ideas that are that are opposed in your head at the same time and so i'm hoping that those two ideas that this is this is particular but this is also an experience a human experience 
that we all understand or some of the, uh, most of them that we all understand. And we need to wrap up here, but you mentioned universalizing and that we shouldn't try to universalize all kinds of situations. And we were talking earlier about the American dream that mm-hmm. a lot of times people think the American dream is where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and you just make a go of it uh, no matter how you do it, but you do it, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But if you don't have those bootstraps to pull yourself up by, um, the experience of trying to attain the American dream is is going to be very different for different people. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly. I, I like that that idea. I mean, the the idea of what if you don't have bootstraps? Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's that's great. I have to. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> Well, Stephanie Powell Watts, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, we'll be happy to welcome you to Kirkwood tomorrow night. You'll be giving uh, part of a presentation there. Yes, yes, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm really excited to be there. That's author Stephanie Powell Watts talking with producer Alex Hoyer. Watts is the author of No One is Coming to Save Us, a novel that is this year's selection in the One Book, One Kirkwood program. The book event with Watts is tomorrow evening at 7 at the Knifer Middle School in Kirkwood. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.